episode number 72. My name is James, and today I am bringing to you my conversation with Tommy Salmons. Tommy, you know, of course, from the Year Zero podcast, as well as the Libertarian Institute. He hosts one of my very favorite podcasts. If you're not subscribing to Year Zero, do that for sure, like right now. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We get into spirituality and politics and all, you know, all the things that I've been talking about recently. I think you'll probably notice that it's a pretty common theme over the next couple of months as I sort of explore these areas. Before we get started, I want to remind you to be sure to leave a rating and review over at iTunes. That really helps out the show. And then also go to blackbirdpodcast.com. Sign up with your email address if you would like to get these conversations early Along with any pre-show banter that me and the guests engage in, sign up for $7 a month or $70 a year, and I will hook you right up with that. This conversation was recorded on November 4th, so it's been almost a month, which means the paid subscribers got to hear this along with me and Tommy kind of going back and forth before we actually started the show several weeks ago. If you are jealous and would like to experience that as well, Sign up at blackbirdpodcast.com. And with that, here is my conversation with Tommy Salmons. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me tonight. It's good to see you again. Yeah, you too, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So like I was just telling you before we started recording, this is the first interview I've done since before RU Texas, where we met, um, was that like beginning of October? Yeah, early October. So it's been it's been a little while. It'll and it'll be an even longer while before I actually release this because I am working on some side projects. So we're just for the audience's benefit recording on November fourth, which is a Thursday night. <sighs> and Tommy's relaxing, and I'm relaxing. So this might just be kind of a relaxed conversation. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for the for the people who haven't heard of you or might not know much about you? Yeah. Um... I'm the host of the Year Zero podcast. You can find me at the Libertarian Institute. I'm also um, a truck driver, no longer over the road. I am working local now. I am uh, the proud father of five children. Um, one of one more, one more graduates this year, so I only got one more left in high school after that. And then um, I raise chickens. I have dogs and about nine acres, a stock pond. I like to plant food and hopefully I get to eat. So man, you're like a, you're like a kind of hillbilly Jack Spearco then, huh? <laughs> I would like to think he's more hillbilly than me, but I oh, live yeah, in that's the, right. He's actually from Appalachia, isn't he? Yeah. I live in the swamp. I've always yeah, been in true. the swamp. <laughs> that's the thing, man. Cause I, there's a stereotype there. Um, I've got an uncle who, I mean, you guys look a lot alike. You're, you're way younger than he is obviously, but um, the same like long beard. Mm-hmm. Kind of look, and everybody thinks of him as a hillbilly too. But I don't think he's ever been to the hills. Like he's he's born and raised in Texas. Uh, do you like? Do you know the difference between hillbillies and rednecks and all that? Like on technical terms, no. Yeah, I, I don't like. And then in Louisiana, uh, some people get mad if you call him a redneck. Some people get, and then there's a there's another slang term in Louisiana called a coon ass. Yeah, I called and, Nick Ashley a coon ass. <laughs> He, he apparently appreciated he appreciated it though. So 
<laughs> yeah, because he, he is a coon ass. <laughs> some people and some people don't like it, but you know, yeah. it's a uh, it's just to me, it's just a term of endearment. You know, if yeah. I call somebody I know a, a coon ass, I'm just like, yeah, you know, you're my boy, you're my people. So sweet. So uh, tell me about Year Zero. What's what's sort of the theme of your podcast? Oh man, it has changed so many times. Um, it it it's about as schizophrenic as I am. I would guess. Uh, started off with under another name actually um, in 2018 it was stranger okay. encounters and the idea that I had was to interview business owners and libertarians because mm-hmm. I was searching for a link I, I instinctively knew when I found libertarianism there was a link between libertarianism and entrepreneurship I yeah. just couldn't figure out what it was mm-hmm. and so just instinctively I just started interviewing business owners, um, self-employed musicians and, and libertarians trying to find that mindset. Like what, what is that link in that mindset? And, uh, I stumbled into agorism, uh, or I guess in early 2019, no late 2019, early 2020, I, I kind of discovered agorism. And, um, so, but by that time, I was already thinking about shifting the podcast to talking more about the CIA and the the operations they've been involved in. Oh, nice. And, and so that's where I came up with the, the name Year Zero, because if you go look at the Vault 7 documents, they had a program in Vault 7 called Year Zero. And it was uh, it was talking about controlling technologies like being able to hack your phones, hacking cars things of that nature. And so I was like, Oh, wow, that's, that'd be a great name for a podcast. And then, um, Scott told me of like, whenever I brought it up to him, he was like, that's a great name for a podcast, but you have to dif- differentiate yourself from the communists because that was, you know, like, what was it? Pol Pot, you know, like, <laughs> and so I was like, Oh, okay. So I, I had to make sure everybody understood I'm not a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, and it quickly went from, CIA into more agorist kind of talking. And then I just started thinking and I was like, you know, I started the podcast in order to give my kids kind of a, a a diary of, of the conversations I enjoyed having the thoughts I I'm going through um, the different patterns in my life. And um, I was like, one thing that no libertarian is really doing is trying to solve the problems uh, or talking about solving the problems of finding freedom in their own life, which was, which Harry Brown's finding freedom in an unfree world was the book that inspired me to start a podcast in the first, first place. So I, uh, I started, I started talking about just solutions, just, just daily things like the things that you deal with in your life, whether it's fatherhood, um, you know, growing vegetables, raising chickens, mm-hmm. uh, fishing, hunting, religion. So we talk about all, I talk about all kinds of things. I don't, I don't consider myself a philosopher of any sort. And theory kind of annoys me after a while. Cause it's just like, okay, can we do something with this? Like, cause I'm all about action. And so mm-hmm. if I don't see any way of taking action, if, if I'm not, if I'm not getting the action out of what I'm, ingesting or putting out there, then I just, I get bored with it really fast and I just throw it away. 
that puts you in a little bit of an awkward position if you're identifying as a libertarian or working for the Libertarian Institute. Where do you where do you draw the line, or where do you uh, like where do you see yourself and the movement as a whole, such as it is, going as far as just thinking and writing and communicating versus actually taking action? And I, I ask this from the from the standpoint of someone who also sees the connection between libertarianism and entrepreneurship. Um, right. And I've pretty much bought whole hog into Jason Stapleton and Matt Erickson's um, sort of you know, wealth, power, and influence stop being poor right. type of message. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm on board with them to, to a degree. I'm more of a, I don't necessarily think technology is going to last. And I know oh. it sounds funny because we're right in the middle of it. Yeah. But if you look, look back into history, you know, technologies have crumbled as societies crumbled. And so I, I am much more about being in touch with the earth and, and the agrarian mindset and trying to make sure that you're fed, you know, that's a, <laughs> you take care of the important shit first. And then, you know, try to make a bunch of money, you know, is, is kind of my thought. And uh, I, I'm also one of those people that'll tell you, you can't help anybody else until you help yourself, which I think is why I'm really attracted to the uh, agorist kind of mentality. It's all yeah. about, you know, taking it up on yourself. And then, then you can, you know, get involved with a community after you get yourself in order. But you don't have any business out there trying to get a community in order whenever you're, whenever you're a fucking mess. Pardon my language. I'm, you know, I'm going to cuss. Yeah, your um, language is great. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, yeah. So as far as the movement, the libertarian movement goes, and I think that's another thing I'm, I'm trying to do with my podcast is I'm a little bit older than you know, than a lot of these podcasters, you know, there's a lot of guys in the Liberty movement. It seems like the movement's very young, you know, a lot of 20 somethings and I'm in my forties and I, you know, I've raised kids and worked for the last, I don't know, seems like forever. And, um, it's, it's some, some of these guys have a real idealistic view of the world. They're yeah. very naive in the way they approach these subjects. And so I don't think I think what I'm trying to do is is help bring forth responsibility into libertarianism. Cool. And um and not in a way that it's discounting towards the term libertarian. I don't personally and I haven't for quite a while used the term libertarian. Yeah. And um, I was just about to bring that up. Yeah, and and but that was kind of a personal decision. I did a podcast with Sherry Voluntary about it whenever I decided to do it when I decided to drop it. And it was because I heard things like Tucker Carlson calling Hillary Clinton a libertarian, you know, and, <laughs> and, and saying that her foreign policy was libertarian foreign policy. And I'm like, well, this is what the mainstream's hearing. Like it, it doesn't do us any good to use a term. And then I, I'll list, I read an article a while back of a, of an interview. I can't remember the guy's name for the life of me. Um, but he was, he's a former communist and, um, he lives, I want to say he lives in Sweden. Um, has a really famous or popular Twitter account. Uh, I just can't, like I said, I just can't think of the guy's name. Anyway, I read one of the one of the interviews he was doing, and he was calling, he was calling uh he was he was basically saying like the Bush or the Reagan administration was libertarian, you know, basically is what he was saying. Yeah. And it was like, man, that's that's not what I that's not 
most of the people I know that are libertarians don't identify like that. And if that's the, if that's what's being put on you, then you have a lot of work in, uh, in marketing to change that, mm-hmm. you know, that ideal that people have. Cause those are, those are specific groups, you know, the Clintons and, you know, Reaganites, uh, you don't really want to be, you know, mixed up with Iran Contra or, you know, right. raping children at a pizza place or, you know, like, it's just, that was, that was a joke. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. So no, yeah, I, and I kind of pin the blame for that on, of all people, Frederick Hayek and Milton Friedman. I mean, these are two kind of neoliberal, like they, they kind of coined the term neoliberal and neoliberalism then became what the sort of centrist Republican Democrat, uh, you know, uniparty became. And so right. when you think, when, when, I guess when Tucker Carlson thinks libertarian, or at least back then, he must've thought, you know, the person who was, into free trade agreements, not necessarily free trade itself, but the, you know, the, the managed trade that NAFTA and, uh, the, the, you know, all the other trade, trade agreements and stuff. uh, And I can hear, I can hear it. I can, I can still hear his voice in my head. Libertarian foreign policy. And I'm like, what is libertarian about this fucking foreign policy of Hillary Clinton? Oh, I didn't even know he was talking yeah, about Yeah, and it was wow. just, it, yeah, he was specific, he was specifically like targeting foreign policy. And I was wow. just like, uh, man. How long ago was that? Was that, was that when that she was, was running against Trump, Trump? That was when Trump was in office. That was in, oh, wow. you know, like 2017, I have never, I've no, never. No, it was after that. the, it was after I started my podcast. So it had to be at least 2018. Like late 2018, early 2019, something like that. I've never, like, all I know basically about cable news is like the clips that I hear on Dave Smith's show. So I don't, I don't really know um, when Tucker kind of had his change of heart as far as that goes. Um, I don't know. He was, he was part of the Ron Paul revolution um, from what I understand. Oh, really? Yeah. He was a bow tie. He was was a bow tie wearing libertarian, man. Yeah. Oh yeah, true. Like Murray, yeah. Murray Rothbard and Jeff Tucker and other such giants. Uh, yeah. I I actually used to do that too. I I learned how to tie a bow tie just so that I could be like Jeff Tucker. <laughs> it's not a bad guy to want to be like. Huh? Yeah, he's pretty cool, man. You you hear some <laughs> you hear some bullshit about him, but uh, yeah. tell me about um, agorism. So, are you still like identifying as an agorist, or do you do you shun labels altogether? Yeah, I've kind of I've kind of gotten away from labeling myself. It, it's yeah. just. You know, because the way I look at it, and it's something that I, I tweeted out the other day, like these labels are, they're, they're cancerous, right? They're mm-hmm. cancerous. They're cancerous for your own psychological, like ability to maneuver through the world. Um, I'm, I'm not an ideology. I'm not some abstract philosophy. I'm not what I do for a living. Yep. Uh, I'm not a father. I'm not a husband. I, I am the collection of, I'm the whole of all of these parts and, and so it's like, it, I, I would rather be judged on the way I treat people mm-hmm. and in my integrity than, than by some, you know, miscellaneous label that I chose to attach to my forehead at that particular moment. And, you know, I've gone back and forth between libertarian, agorist, market anarchist, you know, so it's like, eh, you know, uh, I think Scott calls me a Richmondian. 
Sheldon Richmond. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, he says I'm a Richmondian. So it's like, all right, yeah, that's cool. Like I'm, I'm good with, I'm good with that, you know, because I, I have a lot of respect and I love Sheldon. I've, I've interviewed him a couple of times. And what so, do you? So I guess from that standpoint, then, and and also from the standpoint of responsibility, which I know is a big focus for you, and as a dad, um, speaking of Sheldon Richmond, what do you think it is that rational animals owe to each other? Um, because I take, I take kind of a, uh, I don't know, like my view of, of what people deserve and what duties people have and things like that mm-hmm. is a little bit, um, I don't know if, I don't know if Thad Russell, Thad Russellian or whatever would, would describe it, but I don't, I don't put a whole lot of, I don't put a whole lot of, uh, like weight on duty and, and oh, and deserve, and words like that just don't really enter into my vocabulary too often. Um, whereas Sheldon Richmond's written an entire book on it, and I, I can't imagine I'm going to be interviewing him anytime soon. So I'd love to hear kind of your take on Richmondianism, so to speak. Um, well, that's not why that's not why Scott calls me that. He calls me that because of my economic stance. But um, oh, I want to hear about that too. Then yeah, it's uh, markets, not capitalism. You know, just oh yeah. Me yeah, too. You know, like, I, mean, I, I I got rid of capitalism years ago, actually. Yeah, I haven't called myself it, that in a long time. Yeah, it's the Roderick Long, you know, Sheldon yeah. Richmond, you know, that Gary Chartier type stance on and so that's just that's that's what it is. Um no, all right, as far as social animals, what social animals owe to each other, this is this is interesting because um you know, like when you gotta I mean you gotta go way back, but like if you if you look at like mosaic law mm-hmm. and which was like kind of like it's maybe not the original but it is far back as we can trace back it is the social contract that we can trace furthest back right which was mosaic law and and you look at the way that was set up and it was set up to a degree like if you, if you follow these you know these laws and and your society is running on these laws then you will have a more flourishing, successful society. And it'll be more peaceful, be more prosperous, et cetera, et cetera. Well, back then, your nations were were familial. It was all family. Yeah. You know, it was either family or slaves. Like the tribes were familial. And so today we're in this hodgepodge of, I don't, it's just like some weird jenga puzzle that's just thrown together yeah. <laughs> it's like i don't even know what's going on mm-hmm. um i mean i live in a small town anymore i i, I lived in houston for 25 years though and oh, wow. uh, yeah so if you want to talk about living in city like you you have no there's no voluntary relation in cities you're stacked on top of each other the human life has no meaning because when you have more of something it's worthless Right. I mean, that's just basic economics. Yeah. So it, it's just, it's so devaluing and it's so demoralizing to be in a city. I, I worked, I worked for years to get out of Houston. I hated it. I, number one, I, I knew that if tyranny were ever to hit the United States, the cities would be the first ones to fall. And I was like, I don't want to be a target. And, and number two, I couldn't stand being around all the people. And so I live out in the middle of nowhere. And so I look at, the kind of the social status of where I live and my existing environment. And I don't, you know, the, the town closest to me, they don't, 
they don't raise taxes. What they do is they have a fair and a crawfish boil every year, and that's how they raise money. Oh man, you know, for the town, you know. So it's like, yeah, I kind of, I kind of feel a responsibility to this town to go show up and spend, you know, thirty bucks per person and have crawfish or go to the mm-hmm. fair or whatever. You know, it's almost I'll, like a, it's almost like a church, like a church dinner. I mean, everybody so. brings something and they bring their donations too. Right. Yeah. Very much like that. And so, but I think that's what. I think you're, I think what you're, what you're, you're owing to another person or to the community should be based upon a community that you choose to be involved in. Right. So I know you were, you were raised Catholic, right? Yep. Yeah. So if you like, let's say you're part of, you're, you're part of a Catholic community in your, in your area, well then that's where you're, that's who you owe your obligations to, your family, the community you choose to be part of. You're going, you're choosing to take advantage of the, this community, you know, in one way, shape, or form. And I don't mean that derogatory, just take advantage of, you know, the communion of being part of that family. So, yeah, like, you, you probably owe those people something. But, like, some random Joe Blow down the street that just moved from Mexico, you know, six years ago that can't even speak the language. I don't know. What do I owe him? I don't know him. I don't yeah. dislike him. I don't care. Like he can like, yeah, dude, I'd rather you be doing that grunt work than me. I've done all that stuff. I don't want to do it anymore. Like go to town, you know, but like, I don't owe the guy anything. Like I, it, it just, if I don't, I don't, I don't understand this. It went from, and I think this is the shift. It went from an obligation to your family mm-hmm. that you're born into a family with obligations to your family, right? You have mom, dad, you know, Sisters, brothers. Now they they can forfeit that contract at any time, depending on you know relations and you know abuse or whatever happens. Like yeah, you can that that can all be done away with. But you're born into a series of obligations by being part of a family. That does not go into some abstract society of a bunch of people that you may not even interact with uh, at any specific right. time. And I don't understand. Like that is just that is that's a perversion. It's an inversion of, of what a community is supposed to be. A community should is supposed to be people that are engaged because of likeness and, and commonality and a, a desire to be engaged in that community, not forced into, you know, paying these taxes for this, you know, or, you know, you got to feed, you know, Aunt Jemima down the road and, you know, Billy Bob down up up the hill. Yeah, like, that's not my business. They do their thing. They have their own families. They have their own communities. I'm not part of that. You know. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and l- like you said, the that familial, I guess, social contract, for ba- lack of a better term, um, can be forfeited. Can uh, I mean, can it be forfeited for any reason? I mean, is it is it? Do you think that it's okay to opt out of the familial? social contract just because you, the, your dad rubs you the wrong way. Not, not, not molesty like, but you know, just oh, like his, pers- I, his I personality. Say, definitely. I had to clarify, like, just because, you know, you, you guys don't, don't get along personality wise, or do you think that there actually is sort of an ontological uh, like obligation there? Well, that, no, no, well, that always happens. I mean, Was that's part of the correct. right word there. Probably not. Whatever. An obligation, biological, like whatever, right? yeah, something, <laughs> something. <laughs> one of those, one of those logical things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that always happens. That's that's part of growing up, isn't it? Sure. Like, yeah. You know, you 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 form your separation, and then you 
figure out that they were right the entire fucking time and you grovel back to them, you know? Um, I think there's a story in the Bible about this. (laughs) I think there's a whole fucking lot of them, really. (laughs) I mean, mean, it starts with Abraham and Isaac and ends with the prodigal son. um, And there's a bunch of them in between there, too. With you know families breaking apart, getting back together, right. abandoning one another. I mean, it's one of Jesus's commands. Really, is uh, right. you, know, you, you have to abandon your family and follow me if you want to enter the kingdom. So, like, yeah, I mean, biblically speaking, it's all over the place. Right. I'm and more it's thinking. Also, yeah, and it's also ahead. one of the. It's also one of the things that that Jesus warns about in 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 his teachings is he talks about not not giving your 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 children a reason to rebel, mm-hmm. right? The, yeah. To be a type of father that doesn't give them a reason to rebel. So, I mean, it's going to happen because human humans are corrupt and you know are uh, you know are, are imperfect beings, and so everybody's making makes mistakes, and and mm-hmm. their their divisions do occur. But but you can like like when my I have a situation with my daughter where um, she rarely talks to me, and. Um, a lot of that was because I was, I spent a lot of time over the road gone just so I could afford to pay child support and pay the bills. Right. So I was gone a lot. I missed a lot of their lives. And she, you know, she says, I, you know, she feels like I abandoned her. I, I mean, I can't be mad at her for feeling that way, but there are certain parts of responsibility that she's not aware of that she doesn't understand. Right. She doesn't understand that I sat there in a courtroom with her mom across from me and the district attorney looked at her mom and said, do you want to put him in jail for being late on child support? Cause I had been out of work for eight months and couldn't yeah. find a job during a recession. Right. When, when, when her, when their mom has that kind of power over my freedom, I have to do excessive things in order to make sure that I maintain some semblance of freedom, which it's really, you know, some sort of indentured servitude at that point, you know? Yeah, Texas is fucked up with with child support, from what I understand. Like they'll throw you in jail in a heartbeat for not mm-hmm. paying. Um, which I, I think that's like unique among among states, or at least very few states do that. You so you mentioned the Bible. Uh that's been kind of one of your journeys this this past few months anyway. Why don't you talk about your spiritual life and kind of where you've come from, where you are now, and where do you think it's leading? Um, yeah. Oh, dude, I don't know. <laughs> uh, where it's leading is going to be a hard one. We can get into that, but that's going to be yeah. that's going to be a difficult subject for me because I, I honestly have no clue, and um, that's that's a daily thing for me. Um, I was raised Southern Baptist. Um, mm-hmm. My parents weren't churchgoers, but they made sure we got on the bus and went to church every not every Sunday, but a lot of Sundays. Um, and then I got really heavy into church in high school, um, which is weird because I was really heavy into marijuana and hallucinants as well. So <laughs> I, I don't know what the connection is there, but you know, you can draw your own conclusions. But um, and then I, uh, I don't know. I I never I never felt anything for church. Like it was it was always an intellectual kind of exercise for me. It was always asking questions and a lot of questions that people didn't want to answer. They changed the subject on me very quickly mm-hmm. when I'd start asking questions. And after, uh, after, well, when I was going through my second divorce, I had, um, 
I'd been married for eight years. It was a rough marriage. She had affair after an affair after affair after affair. And I went to counseling and I did all this stuff. And I just, it drove me literally to where I was drinking myself to death. I was, I was drinking a case of beer every night. And, uh, I was just, I would just get, go sit on the back porch and get trashed. And I was, I wasn't, I wasn't being a good father. I was, I was certainly wasn't a good husband. I was, I was still working. I mean, I still held a job and I was sober during the day while I worked. And then I'd get home and I'd go get, you know, sloshed to get, I was just miserable. It was just, I was, I wasn't living. I was just kind of like this lump of, of fluid, just kind of floating through this world that, and I had, and I realized that even going to church every Sunday at that point in time, it wasn't helping me. It did nothing for me. I didn't, I was going nowhere. I was, and it, and it just made me question, like, is any of this even real? Like, what is this? Is it even real? I don't even know what this is, you know? And so I just stopped going to church and I went over the road and, uh, I spent, man, I spent, I, when I, when I was, when I was over the road during that period, I would go out for like three months at a time and I would come home for three or four days, hang out with the kids. Mm-hmm. And then I would go back three more months. I would just, and I would just save up, stack up a bunch of money, grab the kids. And I'd spend four days just spending all the money on them. <laughs> and I would take <laughs> off again. Oh, I'd be man. like, dad's broke. Gotta go back to work. Sorry. You know? And I would just bolt, you know? And, uh, and that, that was kind of my life at that time. And it was, I was really trying to figure out what this spiritual thing was. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was doing a lot of writing, a lot of creative writing at the time, uh, writing a lot of poetry, writing a lot of short stories, just working things out, you know, in my head and the way that I saw the world and the way that I saw spirituality and what I was, what I was dealing with and really really pushing out a lot of, of misery, a lot of the, the darkness that uh, I was encountering within myself because of the marriage I had just been through a lot of other things I'd gone through in my life. I was just trying to flood out, like push out all this darkness and, you know, the church never gave that to me. Um, it, it just, I never had these types of experiences. And so at that point I would, I would spend, you know, 12 hours, 10, 11 hours a day driving in silence, just contemplating like what is, what is the reality of a God or the spiritual world or this, that, and the other. And I did this for, for months, man, I, I would just drive in silence. I wouldn't talk to anybody for weeks on end and I would just drive in silence. And, um, you know, I, I finally got to a place where I was, I was happy. Like I, I guess I had, you know, purged all that anger and bitterness and all that stuff that was in me. It had been purged out of me. And I was also, uh, at the, I, what I considered agnostic and Mm. I was much happier than I ever was in a church. And I felt like it was a much fulfilling way to go about my life going, and I don't know, you know, like who knows, you know, you, you, you have one answer. This guy has another. I don't know, dude. Like I'm willing to listen, but I have no idea. And I'm not going to sit here and try to convince you one way or the other, like whatever, dude. And 
it just gave me this like sense of peace, like to eh, whatever, you know, and, and have that kind of agnostic feel about it. And so I was going through that. And then I've always been watching the way that, 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 that I felt like tyranny was spreading. Even before I was libertarian, I was always acutely aware of what was going on, you know, with, with laws and regulations and things of that nature, especially being a truck driver and having to deal with that, mm-hmm. that nightmare. Um, so I, I was, I started like second guessing agnosticism, I guess, in probably 2019 because it started to feel like I was seeing actual evil. It's it, it went from being, oh, these, these morons don't understand that the incentives of what they're doing, right. you know, is, are perverse and yada, 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 to these people want to kill us. You know, like they want us dead. They, 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 they don't have the, they don't have any time or patience for somebody who wants to live a free life mm-hmm. and who wants to experience liberty in any way. And they, they want us dead. And it really felt like there was um, like a veil had been dropped. And at that point in time, I was like, man, if, if it's that evil, there better be something better. There better be something good because I don't, I, how are we going to fight this? You know? <laughs> and it, it's like, it, 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 I feel like it's, this is something I'm working through. And so this is completely like garbled at this point in time, but it, it feels to me, it, it's something that I've, I've really been focused on the last few weeks is that ideas, thoughts, culture, these things that we find prominent, you know, throughout society are cosmic intelligences mm-hmm. that operate like brain worms and they maneuver and they slide ever so gently and nudge. They just nudge over time. But if you stop paying attention for a period of time, let's say you went into a coma for 10 years and you woke up and you looked around, you'd be like, this is not the world that I left that I, mm-hmm. that I went into that coma in. that morality has, has dropped so drastically. One of the things I, I point to is there's this trend um, going around and I've seen it on Twitter. And I know there's these websites like Chatterbait and stuff like that of, of young girls, like 20, 25, you know, and under 30, mm-hmm. like, like cam girls, like masturbating live on camera. Uh, there are Twitter accounts like dedicated to women that are just like, just go and just randomly get naked in, in the grocery store yeah, and stuff. And I'm like, this degeneracy, like this would never have been okay in the nineties is as bad as, as bad as people want to like paint the nineties as like, we would never have been okay with all that crap going on. Just be glad you haven't seen what the gays are up to. No, oh, well, that, that's that's been going on since the eighties. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we're, we're 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 completely off the rails at this point. Uh, uh, we as in the gays, not we as in you and me. Uh, I think we're doing pretty good. Um, so, 
what was your so what what you just described like realizing that oh these people aren't these people aren't misguided they want me dead that's michael malice's fourth red pill basically was there was there a catalyst for that or did you just kind of come to the conclusion no i th- i think it was just um i don't know if there was a a straw that broke the camel's back or not but i think it was just you know this amount of sand you know mm-hmm. one one grain at a time just eventually i was just like yeah okay like i've excused this behavior long enough these these people are sick you know like they're they're demented you know mm-hmm. they they it doesn't if if my if my dumb ass can figure out like all the problems that have happened you know via let's just say the wars you know over the last 20 years you think you think the president can't afford to pay people smart enough to figure that shit out. Of course they can. They just don't care because it's not about, it's not about the problems that these things have caused. And it's about the profit that they can get gather off mm. these, these problems. And that's, that's just evil. That's just, that's, that's, that's ominous in every, every way, you know, they, they don't want, they, they don't care about the, they, they have no moral center when it comes to, when it comes to making money, money's their God, Right. And so there, and I look at like, you look at all the biggest, you know, things that, that man creates and it always starts off with like at at this evil place. It always starts off like very pernicious, you know, we, we have nuclear energy because they built a nuclear bomb. It's like, you know, stuff like that. It's just, okay. And if, and it, you know, communism and, and fascism and all these, all these, ways that societies have have tried to push out the idea of religion and 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 replace the benevolence and the sovereignty of of a god with the state every time that's happened it's that's just disastrous that doesn't end yeah. well for for people and and so it it's it's put me in a position where i'm like i i i've gotten to the point where i i want to believe like even though I I'm not fully there, I'm like I want to like because if there's nothing better than like what is this this cycle just continues to happen repetitively mm-hmm. until the sun crashes into the earth five million years from now, you know like that's that's depressing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I I was I've actually been thinking about that really just to well I mean I've been thinking about it for a long time but uh, today I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, sort of the, the fact that history is kind of linear, like, you know, it's the, it's the story. One thing happens and then another thing happens. And really when we think of history, it's, it's really just the story of a culture. Uh, like you were saying, you know, I mean, it, it, the, the social contract kind of works if your culture is just your insulated, you know, kinship, kinship right. by covenant, basically to, to quote Scott Hahn. Um, the, oh, I hear your dog. Yeah, sorry. No, that's, it's fine. It's great. That's Butters. That's not the one who likes to climb and climb on me. Oh, your dog. So your dogs are <laughs> your dogs are kind of the co-hosts of your podcast, which is great. I'd like to get into that in a little bit. Um, so it's linear, like it tells a story, uh, but it only. But like when we think of history here in the West, we really only think of the story of one culture. Uh, like American history is separate from British history, and that's separate from you know Asian. It, nobody knows anything about the Khan Dynasty for crying out loud. Um, but it's also kind of cyclical uh, in the sense that um, yeah, like the fourth turning or Vin Armani's uh, framework, which is based on some Hindu framework, 
um, the thing where basically the the like predominant cultural trend um, is set by like the warrior and the priest and the and the the money maker and the bureaucrat basically um, I think I'm missing one but the, so so there's there's that but then there's also so in addition to the cyclical nature where it's like you know maybe four four different parts of us of a circle there's also this oscillation between two things it's the it's the like mystical and material and I think that Vin Armani to to name him again uh and it's kind of a running joke on this show that I name him on almost every episode even though I don't really like him very much uh, <laughs> uh he the the magical slash material thing um really kind of turns the wheel of history and the line of history into the spiral of history D- does that make does that make sense to you like the spiral view of history um where like right now we might be at sort of the apex of one turn in in this this whole thing and that's yeah. why it seems like everyone whether they're the whether they're the the covidians with their masks and and you know bowing down before the priesthood of fauci or you know all these people in our in our circles who are turning towards something like religion um do you think that that's just like a natural cultural trend that was bound to happen i think so yeah i think so and it's it's kind of like I have a book sitting right here. It's um, it's the cosmic, uh, what is it called? The cosmic symbolism in Genesis, right? Mm-hmm. And so one one of the things it's uh, it's uh, Jonathan Pajot's brother wrote it. Matthew Dude, I was Pajot. just about to mention Jonathan Pajot. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm, okay, cool. Yeah, so he's was, so I didn't know that he had a brother who was also a symbologist. I like that. Yeah, actually, he says he's better. <laughs> he's better at it than he is. So. Oh, really? Maybe I'll have better luck getting him on the show then. Oh yeah. Um, but, um, hold on one second. Yeah, sure. My, my wife is looking for the keys and they're in my pocket. Oh, hey, Beatrix. She's not in here. She's texting oh, right. me. <laughs> I'll tell her to come say hi. Okay, I will. Or, okay, good. She will. Uh, we got to, I got to hang out with you and Beatrix at Buck's place, um, which we'll need to, we'll need to talk about here in a little bit. Just sort of both of our takeaways from that whole event. Yeah. So you're talking about Jonathan Pajot's brother and his book Cosmic Symbology and Genesis, which I I know I didn't say the title right, but Oh yeah, yeah, it's Cosmic Symbolism and Genesis, yeah. And so um what he what he talks a lot about in this book is the uh the 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 micro and the macro, right? So you have these these meta narratives and these have these smaller narratives that follow the same patterns as the Do you want to say hi real quick? James, no, I look like crazy you do look, you do look like crazy batshit like, woman. No, yeah, I look nuts. I look yeah. <laughs> he, he can at least hear you. He says uh, hi. Audience, this is this is what it's like to interview Tommy Salmons. You, you have You have his beautiful oh, wife who you can't see because I only post the audio. Don't uh, let that go. Don't let that go. Yeah, he, and his dogs he, and his he, his he lighter flicking. Oh well, I still can't be seen. <laughs> and I'm not all in my hair. I look like shit now. <laughs> all right, we'll give her the keys. Let's get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Leave." <laughs> <laughs> Tell her I love her. He said he loves you. <laughs> all right, <laughs> back on track. <laughs> yeah, my, my my world is chaos but i love it 
I enjoy uh, yeah, it so man. much. This is what this is what makes your podcast one of my never miss. I told you this before. I binge listen to your show. Like yeah. I'll let I'll I'll let you know four episodes or so pile up, which is you know roughly six to eight hours of content, and I'll scrub the kitchen, uh, like spend spend an entire day cleaning the kitchen and listening to your show. Oh, I so, appreciate that. I really yeah. do. It's great. Oh. Uh, but okay, so he he's talking. He talks a lot about the meta in the in the micro, and mm-hmm. so we, I look at it kind of like this, right? You have the Earth, which is round, not round, round, but it's oblong, you know, like whatever, whatever shape they have it at now, um, it, and it rotates, um, which gives us the seasons and gives us days, you know, yada yada yada, how how all that works. But when you're living your life. The earth is flat. It's linear, right? You don't, you don't see the shape of the earth as you're living your life. You don't, you're not experiencing the rotation. You are to a degree uh, at a meta sense, but you're not just day to day. You're not thrown off kilter when you go to try to walk out the door or get out of bed, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I am because I haven't had my coffee yet, but that's another story altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> center, it centers my gravity, I promise. But hello, butters. Um, and so so you also have the the cyclical nature of humanity, right? Which is described... And if you read the book of Revelation, that's what it's talking about. It's this cycle. It's the way it's like the it's the way the pattern manifests itself fully. You know, the the pattern of of life, how it's completed and manifests fully. And so you have the fourth turning, which I have up there. Haven't read yet. I was told I had to finish this book that I'm reading now before I read that book. That's what I was told. I'm just doing as I was told. My buddy Coop was like, no, you got to read Future Shock before you read The Fourth Turning. <laughs> so right. that's what I'm doing. Um, and so so you have this whole idea of these cyclical patterns, but you live your life in a linear fashion or you look at history in a linear fashion, right? But that's this is where the saying comes from that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it often rhymes. It's because you can see the same patterns, you know, happening over and over and over again, Right. We, you uh, you could bring up someone like Nero and Genghis Khan and Pol Pot and Joseph Stalin and Joe Biden, mm-hmm. and you can see these similarities in the way in the structure, like uh, at the growth of of these of these cultures, at the growth of these cultures, at the the way that these things operate, and that the way that the the regulate regulatory state the bureaucracies they work in order to gain more control but so even though even though south africa has gone through the last 20 years before america has you can look at south africa right now and you can gauge whereabouts the united states may be in the next 20 years because we're following these same cycles, these mm-hmm. same patterns, they're just repeating themselves yep. over and over again, just with different actors, different players, different personalities, different size populations, things of that nature. Do you think that globalism has put a monkey wrench in those gears that um, that maybe it has, like maybe some of the strife that we're that we're experiencing, you know, from the beginning of the twentieth century onward, 
ha- has been caused by cultures interfering with one another's cycles? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I could be wrong. Right. I, I, I say, I, I mean, I would allow for that because I think you think about this stuff more than I do. So I, I, I'd love your take on it. If, if that even, if that even makes sense, if the question even makes sense. No, the, the question absolutely makes sense. Um, the, uh, the goal of all these huge regimes that turned to democide was global dominance. It's just the capitalists found incentives to that allowed for more hegemony and and dominance to take place right oh butters please stop whining beatrix left he's going he's just a baby He's he's a sad little soul um but yeah so so yeah, the capitalists found the right way to incentivize the the corporations and and those with the money and the power and the influence, wealth, power, and influence. They they found the capitalists found a way to incorporate them into their system in order to gain more uh, control globally than <clears throat> previous regimes ever had. That's kind of my take on it. It's the way I look at it because the communists they would they wanted to spread communism all over the earth. You're right. They wanted to, but that, but who did the, who did the corporations fund? They funded the capitalist nations because the communists wouldn't let them make any money. So they're like, oh, you know, so your incentive structure is all fucked up for, for your, your end goal. Right. So I think the, the capitalists of, of the United States and Britain have, have discovered, you know, kind of the, uh, the philosopher's stone of, mm-hmm. of global you know, global governance. And that is creating the incentives for those with the wealth, power, and influence to, uh, to jump on board with your program and jump on board with your, your global domination. Do you think that right now the politician, politicians and bureaucrats are more in charge and dominant, or do you think the capitalists are more in charge and dominant? I don't see how to separate the two at this point in time. I mean, the politicians get rich while they're in office. You know, like they're they become yeah, capitalists true. real quick. They're selling all kinds <laughs> of legislation. They sell all <laughs> kinds of favors. So yeah, they're capitalists. They're just a different t- type of capitalist, right? Um, so maybe that's the answer. I mean, yeah, maybe. I think I think so. I, that's but, the way. That's the way I view it personally. The, that's how I look at it. The sort of. Uh, he who shall not be named once again view like cyclical view of history. Like, so it goes from the everyman, like the peasant to the warrior who protects the peasant to the, uh, the like priesthood slash advisor slash bureaucrat slash politician, whatever that advises the warrior to the capitalist, which funds the bureaucrat priesthood politician and then from the from from that capitalist eventually their corruption causes them to fall and it goes back to the everyman peasant um and i've been and if that is true and i think it is i've been really wavering between uh whether we're like at the cusp of the like transition between priesthood slash politician and and capitalist or like if we're firmly in the capitalist milieu and just kind of 
almost about to turn the corner toward the everyman peasant. And like you said earlier, you, you know, you don't have a whole lot of faith in technology. Um, and I mean, so maybe we are like on the way to the, the rise of the, like, I don't know, entrepreneurial peasant, so to speak, like the, the small business owner actually coming into the fore and the, and the massive, entre- the massive capitalist, well, falling the, by the wayside. Do you think? Do you think that that's that that's likely like within our lifetimes or in the next next century or something like that? Or or uh, where, yeah, like where are you at on that? I, I do. I, I think so. And and I also think that um, it explains the the turn that you see for a lot of people to a more traditional kind of religion mm-hmm. um, is because now the capitalist owns the priesthood and the warrior, mm-hmm. and there's nobody there to protect the the servant. And so the servant is desperately looking for something more powerful than the capitalist. Yeah. And, and that's what, that's what we're dealing with. We're like, we got to find something that's more powerful than this capitalist. And, and so, so we turn back to the covenant that's always protected the, the servant. Right. And you, and you look back at that covenant and say, well, this covenant worked for millennia. Why can't it work for me? You know, goosebumps listening to you, listening to you say this. Uh, well, and th- well, this is kind of where my mindset is. Like, this is really what's what's. I, I mean, I went to. I, I talked to. I just released. Well, I'm a, not just released. I just finished recording the intro to release the episode tomorrow morning. But I just touched talked to Justin Campbell last Sunday, and I had attended an Orthodox uh, Divine Liturgy for the first time, and um, it was it was gorgeous. I I really enjoyed it. It was beautiful. Um, never experienced anything like it as far as um like seeing people that like truly like honestly without yeah. a doubt believed like, i watched period. i watched a divine liturgy on youtube last week that's the closest i've come to it i'm a little bit scared having grown up catholic i think of the orthodox as even less kin than protestants because i grew up in texas as a catholic yeah. so like literally all my friends except for my except for my latino friends all of them were southern baptists like you right. uh, they weren't they weren't catholic um, or at least very few of them were. So I've never known an Orthodox person. Um, like I know the Greek Orthodox church in Dallas had like, you know, Greek fest every year where you could go get a Euro, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, and it's funny, you know, my wife's an atheist and, and mm-hmm. she's just like, and she's like, I want to go with you. And I was like, okay. Because she's always, she always has enjoyed like that, the more dramatic, like, traditional kind of of worship that goes on in like a catholic church yeah, or totally. or like within islam or she's always enjoyed that she's always thought it was gorgeous and enjoyed the drama and just the way they do things so she's like i want to go see it and i was like yeah and she goes i think we might go every week and i was like you think so and she goes yeah like it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt to have a purpose on sunday mm-hmm. and i was like okay like, like, I'm fine with that. Yeah, you know, like, I'm not going to argue with you because I'm going down, like, I don't even know where I'm going at this point in yeah. time. And so it's like, okay, that might be the direction, like something to point me in the right direction, you know? So I'm, I'm fine with that. And, um, anyway, I don't, I don't know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's cool. I, I, I lost my train of thought. I'm, I'm super, I'm super intrigued by orthodoxy as well. And it seems like everybody is right now, which is, it's kind of weird. Like I, I would never have thought that, uh, the Orthodox churches would have been sort of the ones that all of our people are gravitating toward when they started gravitating toward churches. But 
um, it is. It's a it's a very interesting. It's a very interesting like faith system, and also a very interesting ritual or you know uh, worship situation. It, it, it's I just, think it's it's very foreign. The thing that draws me into it, it, or draws me to the idea of orthodoxy, is that it really, it's the way the way it presents itself, at least in my mind, the way that I understand it, is that you you take on you discipline yourself to take on responsibility in order to achieve freedom. That's that's yep. the way that that it's. It appears to me, and I didn't have that with the Baptist church. Like, mm. you know, and, and another thing, and, and you probably had this growing up Catholic, so you, you probably experienced this a little bit more than me uh, growing up Baptist. But the thing about, like, uh, Protestant churches, well, at least Baptist, I don't have experience with other ones. And sometimes I hear people talk about Protestant churches, and I'm like, that's not familiar to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, and, and that's like the the Catholic guilt thing where, like, you know, oh, the 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 priests and the nuns made you feel guilty all, all throughout your childhood. That's completely foreign to me. I always went to very progressive yeah. uh, churches and high school and all that stuff. So, so a- anyway, yeah, go keep, keep, keep going. Sorry. Oh no. All, all I was going to say was like the, the ritual, the ritual of the liturgy is, mm-hmm. is not, it's not influenced by the personality of the priest or, or, you know, uh, yeah. those, those, and those that are organizing it. Right. Um, the, I, when I went last week, it was, it was like really cool because the priests like literally only talked for like maybe 10 minutes. Like it was, it, it wasn't like whenever I'd go to church, it was hellfire and brimstone for yeah. 30, 45 minutes. You're getting it, you know, but it was all personality driven. It was all yeah. the Lord led me to say, yeah, you know, and you're like, yeah. okay, like maybe I was. <laughs> Maybe you just happen to read a book that week and you're like, yeah, I'm going to tell these motherfuckers, you know, like, I don't know. One time time my parents and I went to an evangelical service and the lady behind us kept going, yes, Jesus. Yes. Oh, yes, Jesus. Amen, Jesus. Like just throughout the entire service while the preacher was preaching. And afterwards, my dad was like, hey, how about that lady behind us? Sounded like Jesus was giving her a back massage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, and you know, I've been, I did go to a, I think I, I attended, uh, well, I don't think it was Pentecostal. I I went to one church one time with uh, a friend of mine and his mom, and they started, they broke out into tongues, but it wasn't Pentecostal, yeah. it was something else. And I was like, this is weird, man. Like, stuff like that never made any sense to me because it was just like chaotic. It was, there was no, organization behind it. it was just this person going yeah gotta you and this other person saying something else and you're like yeah. what, what is going on here man i don't know people jumping and fainting and you're like i don't understand which yeah baptists don't even like they don't believe in in tongues right like that's not that's just not a thing for baptists it, is that right? i mean it's not they i was always taught that in order to speak in in tongues you there had to be a translator present okay that's yeah what that's I what i thought because tongues and and interpretations of tongues are two different gifts of the spirit that Paul right. talks about, and there there are charismatic Catholics like my mom. My mom actually has prayed in tongues before, um, which she believes you know was the Holy Spirit coming upon her and all that, just like a Pentecostal would believe. Um, so I, I think there are like sects or you know just maybe subsets of Catholicism that actually do do uh, practice charismatic sort of worship and that sort of thing. Um, so it wasn't completely foreign to me and it didn't seem weird 
just because I was kind of raised by a person who had experienced it. Um, so I can imagine having having grown up in a more conservative uh, like atmosphere where that would that would seem really weird and chaotic to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was younger at the time. So it was like, I, I didn't even, I was, I didn't even know what to do with my, I was yeah. just kind of like, uh, I think, I mean, I started, I just joined along and started jumping off chairs and pretending like <laughs> I was, because I was like, you know, I was like 12, 13. I was, sure. I was trolling the church, you know, like I was just like, whatever. And there, so I, you know, but yeah, like I never had like, I, it was never, it was, it was just never a, a, a spiritual experience for me. It was always just kind of, like I said, it was just always a practice in intellectualism and trying to, trying to find ways to interpret the Bible in order to apply it to daily life. That, that was kind of like the way I looked at it, you know? And, um, I always told my wife, like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, but see, here's the thing. I always kind of, I always had a belief in the spirit world. I always have. Like, that's never gone away. You know, it's funny. I was thinking the other day and I was kind of chuckling to myself because when I was a kid, I had what everybody called an imaginary friend. But I never called him an imaginary friend. I called him my invisible friend. And I find that today I still refer to it as my invisible friend, as if he's somewhere doing something, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, oh, okay. So, like, I never lost that, that intrigue of the spiritual, the spiritual world. I, I remember going and like, we'd find out like there would be a place that was supposed to be haunted and we'd just, we'd go. And I've experienced what I think were ghosts at times. You know, like, so you, know, you could tell me all day long it was my imagination, but when two people see the exact same thing and are like, did you just see that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of, it's freaky shit, you know? So, so yeah. So I've never, I never let go of that. It was, it was, but the church that I went to never offered that. It never offered mysticism in any way, shape or form. I really feel like Western theologies have robbed the the religion or the theologies of of that mysticism and yeah. that experience. Well, and, and in particular, and a lot American, of people never are going to experience that. In particular, American, like the American versions of Christianity, um, yeah. you know, we're so materialist, and and we're 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 like we're founded on a materialist. We're like the only country that's founded like on modernist philosophy, and you don't get any more materialist than modernism. Right. Um, so, I mean, from the Puritans onward, uh, you know, I mean, if you ask Matt Erickson and a lot of people, Adam Patrick, all of this stuff, the, the, the entire enlightenment was, was misguided and a mistake and like unnatural to the human condition. I, I think that it's just another oscillation in history, um, that we were bound to go through a materialist phase before the next mystical phase. Um, possibly, I mean, yeah. it's possible. I'm not, Adam Patrick, I'm, not one to, I'm not one to say anything about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, <laughs> like, 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 like we both kind of said, I think it might be just, it might just be the, the kind of the winds of time, really. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just the way it people, it's just the way you process it. You know, I mean, it's like I was saying that, that, you know, it, it, we, we're, we're at a position right now where, where the capitalists have bought the priests and the warriors. Yeah. And so the servants are, are searching. The ser- servants, Servants are looking for, you know, a sovereign. 
to to represent them. Mm-hmm. And and that I mean that's what it basically boils down to. And you know me me being you know solidly blue collar my entire entire life, it's very easy for me to identify with a servant. <laughs> sure, <laughs> so, yeah. you know so. Um, you, you brought up Adam Patrick. I'm sorry. Yeah. You, so you recently had Adam and Reed Coverdale on. Um, I haven't, I've only listened to half the episode. So I haven't gotten to the point where Adam starts talking about the, the Anarch, but I've been reading the book, uh, Imesville, which is where that, where that concept kind of is introduced. I'm wondering mm-hmm. what you thought of what Adam had to say about it. I, I'm assuming you haven't read the book. No, I haven't. I did listen to a I did listen to a review about the book that Adam referred me to, but yeah. I, I haven't read the book. Well, it's a phenomenal um, book, and I, I'm like I've got I've even got it in my Twitter bio. I took I took a free market anarchist out of out of my Twitter bio and just put aspiring anarch in it because I'm <laughs> I'm so I'm so like convinced by this way of thinking and seeing the seeing the world. I'm interested in someone else's take on it. And I didn't get it from Adam. It, it was, it came as a surprise, not a very, not a very, not a shock, but a surprise that he had already read it. And he read it a long time ago. Cause I didn't first hear about it until I read about it in Curtis Yarvin's, uh, gray mirror blog recently. Okay. Okay. Well, um, so I actually, Adam and I were text, I text, we were texting back and forth about this yesterday. Oh, cool. For for a few minutes. I've been avoiding and, texting him about it because I don't want to get I don't want to really get his take on it until I have finished the book and have a chance to digest it. And then I'm gonna have him on the show to to talk about it. Well, I told him that that the reason that he and I are so similar on our paths and the way that, that we're going about things and the way that we look at the world um is is because when I read Konkin and you know, um, Carl Hess and all these guys, mm-hmm. the way I interpreted agorism was becoming the anarch. Yeah. That's yeah. the way I, that was my interpret interpretation of agorism. Well, and that's the reason that I abandoned the, the title agorist pretty quick was because the political ideology behind it, you know, that, oh, these gray and black markets are going to take down the state. I don't really buy that. And there's also kind of a lot of paranoia in it that I don't, I don't, I just don't, I don't, I don't, I don't run in those circles. Well, um, in order to, in order to get to the gray and black markets taking over the state in that, that fashion, I mean, you're talking about millions upon millions of people participating yeah. in, in agorism. I was never, I was never focused on that as the goal. Mm-hmm. I was always focused on how I find freedom. Like yeah. I'll help yep. you once I figure it out. Right. That was kind of always my thing. But that I mean, that that was drilled into my head since I was a kid. You can't help anybody else until you help yourself. Like you're worthless. You're going to end up causing yourself to to like extreme amounts of pain if you give everybody everything you have and you have nothing left to take care of yourself. Mm. with. So it was just drilled into my head. You got to take care of yourself before you take care of anybody else. Right. And so it's it's already my kind of pre- preconceived notion of the way that the world works. So when I'm reading it, I'm not even thinking about the gray and black markets, you know, taking down the state. I'm thinking about how can I uh, afford to find the most amount of liberty and freedom in my own life? Yeah. That's what I'm looking. That's what I'm looking. Number one goal figure it out for me. Number two goal, teach others how to do it. 
You know, like that, that was kind of like my pattern that I was following. What does somebody need to do in order to purchase a nine acre piece of property? Um, that, that seems like a lot of land for a blue collar worker, but if you can do it, I figure I can do it. Yeah, definitely. For sure. You could do it. Um, I don't know about the market right now. is kind of crazy, sure. but, um, I mean, I, I bought this this property from my parents, number one, which did help because yeah. they, they had found it, uh, foreclosed on it, it. It was a closure that they had, they had found and, and bought it. And, um, my mom had been driving back and forth from orange to, um, the Galleria just, out, just in Houston. The Houston um, Galleria. Yeah. And, uh, that's a, that was like a two and a half, three hour drive every morning. And then, so after a few years of driving there two and a half hours, getting up at 3 a.m. and driving there two and a half hours and then driving back two and a half hours in the evening, she started renting an apartment in Houston. And my dad was basically here at the house by himself for um, during the week and my mom would come home on the weekends. And they've been married for a long time. They don't like being apart like that, you know? And so that lasted for about two years. And after two years of that, my dad's like, you know what? Why don't I just transfer? Because my dad works for the same company I work for, which is a retail lumber company. Mm -hmm. He's like, why don't I just transfer up there to the Houston area and we'll buy a house up there and we'll sell this house. And, you know, uh, so they decided to do that. Well, I found out they were selling the house. I'm like, I'll buy it. (laughs) I just, I bought it, you know, but it wasn't extremely expensive. It was, uh, Hundred and seventy-eight thousand. Oh shit! Um, eight and three-quarter acres, uh, barn, pond, and five-bedroom. One, two. Eh, yeah, basically, if you count my office as a bedroom, it's five-bedroom house, uh, three bathrooms. Um, and it was built. The house was built in the eighties, like eighty-four, eighty-five. Um, but yeah, I mean, so. It's just a matter of patience and the ability to find the right deal. I've been looking, I mean, I've, I've said it hundreds of times, but I've been looking to move out. I've been looking to move out of Houston for 10 years before yeah. the opportunity came up, you know, came up. So it wasn't, it wasn't something that I just overnight found, but you could find the deals and it depends on where you want to live. I mean, you can get, I know like, uh, what do you, what are they called? The, Arid, Aridondack Mountains up in New York, northern part of, yeah. yeah. There, the, I mean, the property up there is cheap, cheap, cheap. Like seriously, it's like a thousand dollars an acre or some shit like wow. that. It's like really cheap. So you could, you could buy you ten acres up there for ten grand, build you a house for a hundred and thirty, and you got you got you a nice place for one hundred forty thousand. That's pretty cool. I've been you know? I've been looking at I've been looking at places on acres. Rather, rather than rather than plots in the city where you know it's just a square, maybe a quarter acre. If you if you if you're rich, right. uh, I I I want to get out. Of, I want to get out of the city. I don't want to get too far out of the city though. That's the that's the problem. I mean, yeah, it's going to be more expensive if you're closer to a city. Yeah, I know. the further away you are from a city, the less expensive it's going to be. Yep. Uh, so shifting from personal like microeconomics onto supply chain stuff, you're a trucker. Uh, what's your take? What's going on in the in the logistical world? 
it's a fucking mess. <laughs> <laughs> I asked, I asked Reed, I asked Reed and he was like, you know, ask Gord. So, uh, you're, <laughs> I don't have Gord sitting in front of me. So what, what, I mean, do you know what's going on? Why, why is there a trucker shortage? Uh, and we're, I mean, what's, what's, what's the future hold? Well, what? the, the trucker shortage has always been kind of a, a farce. It's, it's always been manufactured. Um, uh. It's a it's a creation of state policy. Um, they, it's it's Gord is very much better on this topic than I am, but I do understand the the general concept of it. Um, so so the concept is like basically what's happening is the state is funding these mega corporations like like Schneider or Crete or these huge trucking companies that have these large fleets of trucks, thousands of trucks. And they're funding them to put truckers like new truck drivers into the seats of the trucks Mm -hmm. for low pay. Right. And so they're covering the schooling that the way the, the education portion of trucking and then getting the license. And then they're, they're subsidizing these huge companies to hire all these new truck drivers and put them out on the road, which is driving down the the wages. Right. Oh. And so old truck drivers, the experienced truck drivers, the guys that know what the fuck they're doing and been doing it for 20 years, like myself are like, I don't want to do that. Like I'm not going to, why am I going to be gone? Why am I going to, I missed what 96% of my, of my weeks with my wife to sit out on the road. I was home like a day and a half every week. Like, and I'm sitting out there making 52 cents a mile when I could be, you know, now I'm working for a local company. I'm home every night and I'm making more money. Like, why am I going to go back over the road? Like, why am I going to do that to myself? Right. That's part of the problem. Like truckers don't want to do it. They're just like, no, I'm not doing that crap anymore. I can sit here in an office as a logistics manager because I understand logistics. I've been trucking for 30 years. I can sit in a fucking office and make as much money, if not more. And I'm home every night. So I'm like, why not? Like, what do I want to be out there for? What do I want to be dealing with all that crap for? And then you then you add things like e-logs, automatic transmissions, you know, uh, you you limit the amount of hours we can drive, you're you're you know, pushing all these regulations down our throats. And we're like, "Eh, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, I don't have an accident on my record in 20 years, but for some reason I got to follow these, these Mm -hmm. precautions because the state thinks that they can, everything, everything the state does is a blanket, right? They, they just, it's, it's like one size fits all. And that's not the way that the world works. Right. Right. I might be able to drive for 16 hours a day, whereas you may only be able to drive for eight hours a day. Whereas Quincy might be able to drive for two days straight. You know, like, I don't know. Like, why Why is it up to this, like some bureaucrat to decide how long I can sit in the damn cab of my truck? Okay, or, but Quincy, Quincy's a giant meth head, so let's not. I'm just joking. I've never spoken to the guy in my life. I just know that he's wild. Uh, Quince, all right, Quincy let's, is awesome. He's hilarious. Let's, 
let's wrap it up a little bit. So we, you and I and Beatrix and my partner, Andrew, got to hang out for a little bit down at Buck's Place during Thad Russell's weekend. Andrew and I, unfortunately, not unfortunately, I mean, it was great. We, we, we had a lot of fun and we got to do a lot of hard work. I don't think I stopped sweating for the entire weekend because I worked for Thad. Um, so I didn't get to, I didn't get to like stick around and chat with a lot of people, but um, it was still, it was a ton of fun and it was great getting to meet you and a bunch of other people. What are some of the, what are some of the like, things that stick out. I'm not going to say like key takeaways or lessons learned or anything like that, but um, from that weekend, do you have any, do you have any, uh, anything that just particularly sticks in your brain? The, the, the number one thing, man, is when you go to these, these events, I, this year is the first time I've ever gone to any events. I went to mm-hmm. Childerberg this year and then I went to RU weekend and um, it's just, it's just so great meeting the people. Yep. Like just, I'm not, believe it or not, I'm not a huge people person in my private life. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I come home, I stay at home. I, I'm by my, I'm with my wife and my dogs. And that's it. That's my entire life. Other than podcasting, that's all I do. You know, I sit here at the house, I drink beer and I hang out with the wife. That's it. You yeah. know? And so getting out there and meeting a lot of like-minded individuals. And I think that's part of my issue with, with going out and and dealing with the public is not a lot of people think the way I think not a lot of people are, are on the same wavelength as I am or are willing to have the conversations or want to have those conversations. You know, one of my big complaints about truckers when I was over the road, why I would never go spend any time at the, uh, in the truck stops, is because all they ever wanted to talk about was driving truck. I'm like, well, I drive a truck <laughs> fucking 11 hours a day. I don't need to talk uh, about it. I know yeah. what it is. Like, I, let's talk about something that's more intriguing, like more interesting, you know, something I don't deal with every day. And that was always like a big, a big challenge with me getting along with other truck drivers. Um, and so it's, it, it, that's the, the community that that's around, um, in in these circles, you know, we may be small, uh, a small community, but everybody I met was amazing, you know, and I, I love that. I love it. I love having that, those relationships that I'm like, okay, this is, this relationship is going to last for a long time. Like mm-hmm. I got a good friend here, you know, and that's, I mean, that's one of the things about podcasting. That was an unseen blessing was a lot of the relationships I made uh, over the last few years mm-hmm. in podcasting. It was just like, oh, wow, I didn't I didn't know that me and Matthew Ho were going to be good buddies. You know, I didn't know I was going to be able to just text Mike Meharry whenever I felt like it. Yeah, you know, like, I, it just, these things were just like, all right. Like, it, it was kind of, it, and that's always the the best part of it. You know, yeah. getting to sit and hang out with guys like, like, some of the, the guys I was, I, I, me and Beatrix bunked with, like we've been friends online for three, four years now. Yeah. You know, go, I was there with Gord and Josh Childress and a couple of other guys that aren't on podcasts. So I'm not going to mention their names, but yeah, like we've been buddies and bullshitting for a long time, you know, on a, on a private message group. And suddenly like we're getting to hang out for a weekend, you know, and shit mm-hmm. like that. That's like a blast, you know? And yeah. so, yeah, I enjoyed that. Like that's that's most fun to me. Getting to hang out with Scott Horton again, getting to meet you, getting to meet Dad in person. You know, like all these things. Like that's the most memorable part of it. You know, like the 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 
you know, the clinics that that has are great, but the people you meet, that's, that's the invaluable part. Yeah. I had dinner with Roth Birdian's boyfriend who I'm not going to, I'm not going to name him just so that I don't add him. I think he's anonymous on Twitter, but uh, you know, I mean, she, he, he's been on like every Thad Russell class that I've ever been on. And so like, just to get to sit there and shoot the shit with him for half an hour while we ate was really cool. Um, and then the following weekend, I went to the Tom Woods 2000th episode thing, uh, or, you know, that you know, there were thousands of people there. Right? Yeah. And I think probably the person I was most excited to meet there was Pete Quinones, uh, just cause you know, we'd talked so much and right. he's had, he's had probably a bigger impact on me than even Tom. So, uh, so that was pretty neat. Um, all right, cool. Well, is there anything else you want to, you want to mention or talk about before we start dropping plugs and getting out of here? Well, you said you wanted to ask me about the dog, but like, we don't have to talk about Oh, yeah. About. Let's talk about the dog. <laughs> huh? Let's talk about the dog. Let's talk about the dog. What you want to know? Um, well, how do you... He's a big fucking baby. He weighs 100 pounds, he, and he never leaves me alone. There's two of them, right? There, there are two of them. There was one of them that rode with me in the truck. He's the one that's oh. always making his appearances on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. Is that Butters or the other one? That's Boogie. Boogie. Yeah, right. he's the he's the big blockheaded. <laughs> are they are they pit bulls? Both of them are pit bulls. Yes, yeah. they're both from the same litter. They're oh cool. Yeah, I've got my little beagle. Who now that I've got a rug, I was telling you before we started recording, Chris of Podsworth Media, who does my audio editing. Thank you for doing that for me, Chris. Convinced me finally to put a rug down in my office, so there was so, there wasn't so much echo. And as a side effect of that, now instead of laying like on his bed, my dog lays down at my feet on this rug which uh, <laughs> i keep kicking him and he, but he doesn't move so uh, we both kind of have our we both have kind of have our companions although mine's a beagle so he's not nearly as big as, <laughs> as yeah. your guys yeah well the, the whole the whole thing started with with boogie making appearances on the show it was uh it, it was all spontaneous. And I was just like, you know what, man, this is a podcast. This isn't CNN. Like, I don't yeah. care. Like, I'm just having a conversation with somebody. Yeah. Like, and I, I, I pride myself on being the exact same person, like in real life that I am on the podcast. Mm -hmm. That That's, I don't, I don't put a face on for anybody. I'm just, I'm just am who I am. And I try to be thoughtful and courteous and, but I'm going to have fun and I'm going to tell stupid jokes and that's what I do. And so, um, so it, when he was, a when he was a puppy, when he, cause he started riding with me in the truck when he was five weeks old. So when he was a puppy, I would just let him lay in my lap while I was podcasting. Mm -hmm. So I'd be talking to somebody and he'd be, you know, he'd be sleeping in my lap. And then as he got bigger and he started getting in the way because he's a monster, <laughs> um, I, I would make him go, he would go sit on the seat, like, you know, in my cab, neck, in the passenger seat, in my cab. But as soon as I would start talking for like the first 15 to 30 minutes, I would be talking. He'd be climbing on me. Oh my God. And people would just find it hilarious. You know, like <laughs> they would just be laughing, you know? And I remember like when I'm interviewing Matthew Ho and I was like, all right, I'm going to try this a little different. I'm going to sit in the bunk so he can lie next to me. Maybe he won't be climbing on me. Oh, no, that didn't stop anything. He's all up on my shoulders. Oh, my he's licking me. And Matthew's laughing. <laughs> and he just makes this comment that for, for those that can't see, Boogie is climbing all over Tommy. And, and then I had, uh, 
a buddy of mine that happened to be at RU Weekend, one one of the one time I released an episode and he goes, and he was like, My favorite part of the episode was hearing the squeaky toy. And so what, <laughs> what was happening? And this this began to be this began to be a thing for Boogie. Like instead of climbing on me whenever I would start talking, he would go grab his toy and bring it to me. Oh so God. I had to pay him attention because otherwise he would stand there and just chew on it and squeak, 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 squeak <sighs> right next to me. So I would grab it and I would throw it over my shoulder into the bunk. And this would go on for like 15, 20 <laughs> minutes. Like if people like, I'd be talking to people, they'd be looking at me like, what are you doing? And I'd be like talking and just like, yeah, I love blah, 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 and just chunking this. And you could hear him jump in the back and grab the squeaky toy and squeak it and then bring it to me. And so it just, it just became this thing. It was just like a thing. And so whenever, um, whenever I had top lobster, uh, do the art for the shirt should be out on the libertarian Institute. Now, actually the year zero shirt, I had him put boogie on the shirt with me. Mm -hmm. So you got me standing there holding a microphone and boogie right next to me, which is what my, that's what my profile pick on Twitter is now. Yeah. And, um, so, and so it just, it just became a thing. And so he's just, he's my, he's my co-host that, you know, I have to lock out of the studio every time I record. <laughs> <laughs> because, but well, it's gotten worse since we're home. Like it, it, when, it went, when we were over the road, when we were in the truck, he would eventually just lay in the seat and look at me and just lay there and stare at me like, okay, you'll, you'll pay me attention when you're done. Now there's two other dogs here, right? So as soon as I start talking, he's up here and I'm like this. And, you know, you got a hundred pounds of muscle just pressed up against you you know, trying to take you down and he wants to climb in my lap and then he wants to lick on me and then he wants to walk around Then he wants to get down. Then he wants to jump back up and it's like, okay, dude. So now I got to close him out of the office. It got to the point where it was just too much because his brother will come and lay next to me and he's like, oh no, we can't have that. So he's climbing over his brother onto me. Like it's just, it's just way too much drama anymore. All right. I love it. Uh, next time I'm down in Texas, I'll have to meet the dogs in addition to seeing you. Why don't you go Absolutely. ahead and tell people where they can find you and then we'll get out of here. Yeah, Year, uh, year Zero is found at the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org forward slash year dash zero. Or you can follow me on Twitter, which I don't twit very much, uh, but it's at TD Salmons. And usually if I say something on there, I'm either being completely hyperbolic or completely stupid which is right up my alley i know how to be stupid so good that's what i, I that's what i do best <laughs> i i stupid with the best of them all right and uh i think the libertarian institute fundraising drive will probably be over by the time this is posted so i'm going to go ahead and donate as we speak uh and encourage people on twitter to do it um and you know i mean obviously you can still donate to the libertarian institute even after their fundraising drive is over but we're in the middle of it as we're speaking Awesome. Well, thank you, Tommy. I'll make sure to drop your links in the oh, show look, notes. I just got an alert. I'm supposed to record with James Gentleman right now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we started way early because you got off work, which I appreciate because <laughs> now I'm going to go watch. Now I'm going to go sit on the couch and drink alcohol and watch a uh, watch a scary TV show with my partner. So we'll enjoy. Good it. deal, man. Enjoy <laughs> your evening with him. Cool. See you later, dude. All right, brother. We'll talk later. 
Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. (laughs) 